I think too much we try to split things, even biopsychosocial, we try to split things and pull them apart and have them as separate components. Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we talk about pain, rehab, performance, and education. If you have questions about the nuance that we dive into, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. Apart from that, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and we hope everyone stays safe and is staying healthy. Welcome back, guys. We are here with uh, Brandon Fredhoff again. Hey, guys. How you doing? And um, we're going to do kind of a follow-up. So obviously the first episode, if you didn't listen to that one, that was on continuing education, residency, fellowship. Brandon is a fellowship-trained physical therapist in uh, Marlton, New Jersey. And then uh, we obviously discussed kind of my experience with residency, his experience with fellowship. So if you didn't listen to that one, go back and listen to that. If you want a little bit of an introduction on who Brandon is. Uh, but in this one, we're going to dive in a little bit deeper and go a little more clinical. Uh, and we're going to be mostly focusing the discussion around these two papers, uh, both of which Brandon had selected because you, you said you're kind of on like a somewhat of a self-efficacy or psychosocial component kick right now. Yep. Uh, so the two papers we're going to be referencing, and these will be in the show notes if you need to see them, or you can just contact either one of us and we'll we'll send you these papers over. But uh, first paper is self-efficacy is more important than fear of movement in mediating the relationship between pain and disability in chronic low back pain. And uh, the primary author on that is Luciola, I assume that is how you say that. Um, and that's a 2011 paper. And then the second paper is self-efficacy and risk of persistent shoulder pain results of a classification of regression tree analysis by primary author Chester, um, and that was in 2019. Um, so both fairly young papers. Uh, but before we kind of talk, talk a little bit more about the, the papers specifically, um, Brendan, what's like been like? Why are why did you choose these two, or what? Why have you been on this kick of reading more stuff about self-efficacy? So basically. You, by digging, I see a lot of chronic patient, uh, chronic pain patients here and uh, in the clinic, and uh, a mix of both actually. But because th- this stuff isn't just reserved for chronic pain patients, but I'm looking for every little angle I can get to to help get people better and to help make these dis- disabling disorders and other issues be more manageable and have more function be attainable. So. At this point, like as you talked, as we talked about on our last show, the residency fellowship type of stuff, you do get the psychosocial kind of, you get a lot of education on that, but a lot of it's still main interventions with your manual therapy, your exercise, and things like that. So, just looking at that patient centered, I know that sounds cliche, but that whole patient like formula, like all the things that you really need to assess in somebody. I think we need to take it further and kind of uh, I'm in the process of trying to look into what some of those factors are and self-efficacy is the pain self-efficacy specifically continues to be the thing that pops up at, and uh, you know these things come in trends sometimes even the one paper sometimes it's for your avoidance sometimes it's diet sleep whatever but uh self-efficacy is something that I wanted to learn a little bit more about 
strategy wise and exa- also examining for it with each patient. Yeah. And so like, as I think that, you know, my background at Jefferson as a student and then as a resident has been, you know, I've been exposed to more of the biopsychosocial model in terms of being a little bit more forward with pain education and understanding people from, you know, a whole, I don't want to say holistic. That's that, that word just tends to be associated with a lot of other stuff, but um, you know, looking f- at a human being who's in pain as a human being and not as a painful tendon. And, and that obviously involves uh, the psychology, the sociology right. um, and all of the other factors, but self-efficacy more specifically, isn't something that I feel like I've had, I think we, we've probably learned more about fear and talked more about fear with, you know, the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire as being one that's routinely kind of cited as uh, related to disability with low back pain uh, in particular, and is part of, you know, clinical prediction rules for success of manipulation or mobilization. Um, But self-efficacy itself hasn't been something that I've personally dived into uh, to a tremendous extent. So these were, were two solid papers to read. But for you, just maybe not even from a research standpoint, how do you conceptualize self-efficacy? Like if you had to explain to someone what it is. So I kind of do, I don't do like, uh, I guess you could even just take the definition from the internet for it. And self-efficacy is really just the belief someone's belief in their ability to do things independently to where we're not we're not having to seek out all this help and we're not it's not this like thing to where it's like you're stuck in this loop so basically when i see the patients uh, i ask there there's the questionnaires which is what we'll get into but when i explain it it's basically giving them that that control to where they have the ability to manage themselves at certain points and they have the tools that they need to. So just building that confidence of self-management, building that confidence that, hey, this you can get better and you don't need to be seeing 35 practitioners or healthcare professional, uh, professionals to get it done. Yeah. And do you feel like that's something that you, I know you said you kind of touched on that in fellowship uh, when you went through, do you feel like that's something that was explored enough or no. was a lack in your education it's uh all the way to a fellowship it was complete self-efficacy the this concept kind of using it as a obviously you, we heard about like locus of control and all those things like that but like in terms of just looking at it in a clinical manner it's really it really wasn't touched upon in a major way besides maybe being talked about because like you like you alluded to it's more fear avoidance gets a lot of the attention and some of these other psychosocial components have been more more famous per se, more of a target for people than this. Um, so it's almost it's kind of a you go as you go through all these steps and all you get you you have to like pivot compared because like at some points you're like you're you're training is to like get people in. You're a manual therapist. You you're gonna you're gonna treat them and you're going to basically fix them. Um, then as you start getting higher in the education, so the fellowships in orthopedic manual therapy, but I think what anybody they'll tell you that, that went through it will say, I do less manual therapy. Not that it's a a bad thing. You know, it has its place just like any other intervention, but you got to start, you start to trend towards the, I don't want this person to be here for 15 visits. I, I don't want them to be 
somebody that has to always come back the first time something goes wrong. I want to teach those strategies so you evolve as you go on to where the, these are the types of things that you want to give people. It's like that saying where you can lead people to water, but you can't teach them how to drink kind of thing. You have to, we want to teach these coach people, not fix them. So that's where I think this comes into a big play with the self-efficacy. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, I think I, that's mirrored too in my own experience through school. I don't feel like we talked quite as much about self-efficacy and that's been something that I've kind of seen pop up. And now when, as we get into, you know, this first paper looking at self-efficacy in comparison to fear of movement for pain and disability and low back pain, I think we'll, we'll probably get into the fact that there's likely to be some overlap, especially in the limitations of the tools that we use. Um, but so let's just dive into this paper. Self-efficacy is more important than fear of movement in mediating the relationship between pain and disability and low back pain. So the paper, obviously in the title, I hate when they do that in the title and just like give you the answer of what they're concluding at the end of it. Um, but basically tell me a little bit about like the paper, why you chose it. Um, and yeah. It was a unique study design. I don't want to get too statistical with any of these things, but um, basically they just looked at pain. They measured pain intensity. They measured uh, disability and they measured self-efficacy and um, they used the Tampa scale for uh, fear of movement. So they looked, they tried to determine a relationship um, of what mediates pain intensity, disability, and they were really just choosing between what has a bigger, what's a bigger deal with it? Is it self-efficacy or is it fear of movement? So at baseline, they found that both, because they the, the good thing about the study is that they were able to, they took people that were um, rather acute with their low back pain. So that way they didn't develop any of these maladaptive thoughts. They didn't have time really, which again is not foolproof by itself, but it wasn't like they were taking people at various chronicities to where they would have maybe they would have maladaptive beliefs and all set in. So they had relatively fresh people who had uh, low back pain. They measured them at baseline using base, all outcome measures really. And then they took it down a year and they saw and they remeasured all the same things again. So there's a pretty decent sample size. I know they lost a lot of people in it. Some people had met some exclusion criteria, but there was a, a decent number of it. Um, and, and then they were just, they had their hypothesis and they ran, is fear of movement or self-efficacy more important for mediating that relationship between pain intensity or disability? So like I said, at baseline, they both partially mediated it, but at the end of the study, they were finding a stronger association with self-efficacy rather than the fear of movement, which kind of goes against the the prevalent popular kind of belief system. Yeah. And so, you know, basically, you know, they're they're getting people fresh first time, you know, maybe not the first time, but they're coming to the clinic with their acute onset of low back pain. And then after a year, they see who's still in pain who's not still in pain, and what's the difference between these two people? Is there a relationship between their baseline self-efficacy and who stayed, you know, had longer, more disabling severity of pain and more limitations in their self-reported function? Um, Which is different because a lot of times when you dive into this stuff, particularly with fear avoidance beliefs, and you're you're looking at at that as a correlate to 
prolonged pain and disability, you can kind of run into the chicken or the egg, right? It's like, okay, you've been in pain for five years. You have high fear avoidance beliefs. Is that a result of the pain that you've experienced for five years? Or is that driving the pain that you're continuing to experience for five years? Um, Whereas in this study, they were able to see where were you at when you first started having pain and then they can track down the line where are you at there in terms of fear so they can get a little bit more of a of a, some insight into you know the extent to which it's really mediating things like you said um, so the hypotheses from the authors of this paper were that they thought self-efficacy uh, beliefs or beliefs about fear of movement were going to mediate the relationship between pain intensity and disability at the onset of chronic low back pain so what would eventually become chronic Um, And then their second hypothesis was that changes in pain, self-efficacy beliefs and or changes in beliefs about fear of movement would mediate the relationship between changes in in pain intensity and changes in disability after 12 months from the onset of chronic low back pain. So they basically thought self-efficacy or fear would mediate the relationship between intensity and disability both immediately with back pain and after a period of time. Um, and then, you know, we can kind of flip through. They had some in- interesting statistical methods that they went about, which again, we said we're not going to dive into too much, um, partially because they're complex to the extent that you probably need to be a statistician to, to truly understand the intricacies of what's going on, but also because that's probably boring and, and no one wants to kind of dive into that. Um, so yeah, then they, they break up their, they broke up their, analyses into these different categories so you know what's the effect of pain intensity on disability mediated by beliefs about fear at the onset then the same thing at one year Mm -hmm. then the same thing with self-efficacy at the onset and self-efficacy at one year and then they're comparing you know how does self-efficacy change things versus fear avoidance or fear beliefs Um, so did the results of this study which obviously did state that there was a an effect of self-efficacy on pain and disability and how that develops over time and fear and again i think that an important distinction before we even kind of progress on this note is that a lot of times when people hear this they may think to themselves oh well you know self-efficacy may relate to changes in disability but if self-efficacy is related to pain intensity then maybe it's a correlation not causation and the pain intensity is really like you can imagine if you have you tweak your back you have eight out of ten pain you're probably going to feel a little bit less self-efficacy than if you tweaked your back and you had three out of ten pain yeah the three out of ten pain you're going to feel like you know i can probably get over this the eight out of 10 pain, you might start to be fearful and you might start to think, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out of this. But what this study did, and it's an important distinction is they included pain intensity as a covariate when they looked at the analysis of how much self-efficacy impacted. So regardless of the intensity of pain at baseline or at the end of the study, they were able to include that as a covariate and still saw an effect of self-efficacy on how much that changed in terms of pain and disability. 
So the that does provide a, a nice distinction of whether or not you know it's really the pain intensity driving things or the self-efficacy. And here it would suggest that it's the self-efficacy and the fear, and that the self-efficacy actually had a, a bigger impact than the fear. Yeah. Um, but were the results that you read through this and and kind of how they discuss things? surprising to you was it something that you weren't surprised by like what are your thoughts on that oh just with the i was well like you said the title gives it away before you read it but um honestly i i am a little surprised that the the fear movement was not was not correlated with it at the end i think and and the paper alludes to this too i think the difficulty with one of the one of the things that it's tough with this study is the the overlap. I think too much we try to split things, even biopsychosocial. We try to split things and pull them apart and have them as separate components to where you have, oh, it's either a bio issue, a psycho issue or a social issue or and even with these things like how how can you really truly separate fear of movement and and self-efficacy in some ways too. There is an overlap. If you're afraid of something, you're going. You're not going to do it on your own. So it's there. There's an overlap even there. So I figured still that the, both of them would be would be meaningful to to attempt to change. Um, I don't think by any means this paper should be a reason to abandon the fear avoidance model or anything like that. I think that you just have to tackle each person that comes in and, and see what their main primary drivers are of what, why they're behaving the way they are and why their, their symptoms uh, are behaving the way they are. So I was a little surprised, but I mean, um, the, the way that thinking about how impactful some of these things are with chronic pain syndromes and chronic back pain, which is obviously the most prevalent one, it's, uh, it's, a little surprising that just one was was associated with things to a to a good degree. Yeah, and to be fair, like you know the the, the when they say chronic low back pain, they're still referring to low back pain that's less than twelve months. Yeah, right, because they're following up at twelve months. So does fear start to become more relevant True. when you're looking at thirty six months, fifty months, a hundred months? You know, at that point maybe fear starts to play as much of an impact as self-efficacy um, and really the fear isn't as related because when you look at you know some of the length of chronicity of someone you know, who has had back pain for 10 20 maybe even 30 years you know that's very different that almost makes one year look acute yeah you know so absolutely there, there may be significant differences when you start to tease that out and mm -hmm. really compare 10 years to one um, it's not just because you hit the three-month mark that now you're chronic for the next 30 years, and it's the same, you yeah. know, effect re regardless of whether it is three months or 12 or 30 years. That's um, a good point. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like I was surprised that you know, and they they kind of cite some other research where fear avoidance was supported as as a related variable. So the extent to which this is you know, somewhat unusual or, or in disagreement with other literature is, is to be seen as things are followed up. Um, but, you know, as I, I take it more as I feel a, a positive for self-efficacy yeah. than it is kind of a deterrent for fear avoidance. I think it's just Agreed. another tool in the toolbox. But, you know, then the difficult part when 
I think I've had a lot of these discussions, particularly in the sports realm or in the performance realm, is like, what do you do with that information? It's like, you know, self-efficacy matters, but there's been, you know, some some folks who would suggest that self-efficacy is not even something that you can change as a PT and you need, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or other mechanisms. So like when you read this and you recognize a patient's self-efficacy is going to be important for their pain and disability as this progresses over time, how does that change what you actually do in the clinic? So the first thing has got to be education and you have to get to know that it all kind of falls in line with the same cut. You got to know who's in front of you. You treat the person, you don't treat the low back pain. You don't treat the tendon as you were saying, because some people are ready for different types of advice at different times. There's that whole, in terms of the control, there's that like time, I forget the model, the psychological model to where like, you're, you're dependent and then you're the hero and things like that. So you, you have to make sure the person's ready for this. Also, you also have to be aware of most of the time these people are being seen by multiple practitioners or, or healthcare professionals that are giving mixed messages. Um, chiros, other PTs, physicians, acupuncturists, all that. You you get different feedback. And that's a common theme with most of these people to where it's like they've seen, they've been told too many things They and, and it fits the narrative. I'm still in pain after all this time. It must be that something's going in and out of place or that I have this uh, degeneration that's never gonna get better type of thing. So first you gotta develop that rapport and alliance with the person. You do that by being empathic. You listen to their story. You give them time to talk. You reassure them with good, nonverbals, uh, yada, yada, all that, which is extremely important. So then when you determine whether it's from the questionnaire, or sometimes you can tell just by people's behaviors and kind of their, their coping strategies that you get in the subjective history, then it's time to breach maybe a good way is using the evidence like this, putting it in uh, terms of saying, hey, it's not muscle strength or a joint, a joint like degeneration or things that is gonna, or like strengthening your core that's gonna get you better in these cases, because I'm sure you've done that along your journey the whole way. There's research showing that understanding kind of the pain behind why you're why you're having the pain you are, understanding what drivers that may be. Again, going back to that wheel of the things, whether it's sleep or maladaptive behaviors and coping, uh, stress, depression, whatever you wanna, whatever, it shows up for that person like these are we're seeing from from this questionnaire it's highly related to say if you have a lower self-efficacy like this building that up for you is going to help you in the long run to feel better it's a way into the tap into that to get that pain down because sometimes people are ready for they've had the run of the mill treatment at that point so i think that offers a window to offer them something different so most people are receptive. Most people wouldn't argue with self-efficacy. That's more some of the pain science mechanisms to where mm -hmm. people, it's where they determine, where they think you're telling them it's all in their head or things like that. So from that point, then that's the age-old question with manual therapy. Is that something, and I don't know, I don't want to open to a can of worms uh, with this, but does that create dependency or does that create 
or, or does that not do anything for that? And I would argue again, like any other intervention, there's a time and a place. You have to have clinical reasoning, justification for it. If somebody gets some relief with a manual technique, if you spend five minutes doing it and then you give them the tools to kind of replicate it and you like, I don't see the problem with that. These are not the people that I'd be doing 40, and I wouldn't do this with anybody, but 45 minutes of manual therapy with, because that's creating dependency. Anything that you do for that long is going to create dependency. So you, you want to, whatever you do, you want to be encouraging to the patient. You want to empower them. You want to say, you want to like be overly positive and not in a fake way or an unethical way, just saying like, look at you, you're moving. That's the same, that's the same type of movement that was bothering you. And look, it's, you're doing it maybe a different way, like a gradual exposure. You just have to make sure you put the ball in their court. You're a team. You establish that from the beginning. It's not you fixing them. That's like my main thing from this. It's a coaching thing. We don't fix people. We coach them and then we guide them and we do it together. And that's how you do it. Yeah. And that, that's a good point. I actually saw, I don't even remember who it was. I wish I could give them credit, but it was either on Twitter or somewhere in the social media sphere. And they were making the case that, you know, the, the case that manual therapies decreases self-efficacy because then the, the person's just somehow immediately going to assume that, you know, and maybe there are cases where a practitioner says that their hands are fixing the thing and that they are the solution. And that's a salesman type of thing or misinformation or lack of education. Uh, and that's harmful to the person and potentially does diminish their self-efficacy. But in the context that you give a manual technique with you know good evidence-based narratives and you suggest to the person, hey, I am just doing this to show you or to allow you to modify how you're feeling and then I'm going to give you the tools to do it yourself. So an example of that could be, you know, maybe you do some thoracic P to A, you know, mobilizations, and then you show them the person how to kind of replicate that on a chair or with a foam roller before they go in and then they do their, you know, strengthening of whatever thing or their endurance work or whatever other physiologic kind of adaptations you're going for there. But the, giving them that tool and you using your hands to show or open the door for them to understand that their symptoms are modifiable was the point that was being made on this social media post. And it was like, you could actually probably make the argument that that's beneficial to their self-efficacy because you're giving them tools that modify symptoms. And that mm -hmm. kind of goes you know, to this next article where we talk about self-efficacy with... Uh, you know, more of a persistent shoulder pain, that's where I think something like the SSMP, the shoulder symptom modification procedure fits in, where you may be doing a manual technique, a thoracic positioning thing, thoracic mobilization, maybe you're doing a scapular assist, or you're doing glenohumeral joint mobs, or you're applying some kind of glide and, and having them go through motion. But then you're able to follow that immediately up with here's how you can get that effect on your own. I think probably, if anything, helps their self-efficacy. But at the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know how a lot of our narratives and our interventions affect self-efficacy. Yeah. So to make a claim either way that it's probably going to hurt their self-efficacy or it's probably going to help, 
honestly at this point is just conjecture yeah. and we don't have any hard data to suggest like we're not tracking self-efficacy as a profession enough and hasn't been studied enough that we know what our effect is on it yeah at this point you know kind of and kind of how these papers highlight we just know that it's starting to be important and we can probably address it like you said from an education standpoint and keep it in our minds but we don't know the effect that we have on it yet. Yeah. So it is hard to say how we should modify our typical treatment to incorporate it. Yeah, and to that point, to the symptom modification debate, what are what is the main thing people usually are, what's the main symptom we're seeing in these outpatient orthopedic clinics and things like that? We're, we're treating pain. Um, and we're, that's, a, if we're talking about what's important to the patient, that's going to be one of the first things that come out of their mouth is pain. I think our job at that point is to make it functional. But um, at that point, too, if you got to understand the person's goals. But uh, think about all the things that you do for symptom modification. People pop two Tylenol. People, people will, yeah, go get an adjustment from a chiropractor or come to, come to us for some type of manual technique or go get a shot. It's all, it's all kind of a... They're all symptom modification things. Even mm -hmm. if you frame it a certain way, like exercise, say an isometric, that's that's a pain relieving thing. And I get it. I get it to the points where that's more of an active thing that the patient can do on their own. But there's also that's also making pain a a very of uh, something that's very complex, something that's very simple, which it's not, and we know that because at some point your isometric external rotation of the shoulder isn't going to give you the relief if there's other factors at play, such as these other psychosocial things. So it all goes back to the thing. You can, I don't think it's a generalizable concept to be actually in actuality because every person's going to have different life experience, different levels of chronicity, different maladaptive behaviors, different beliefs and expectations which kind of leads us into the next paper. But so you have to like see what you got in front of you before you make your decision. That's why having a toolbox isn't more important than having a, a go-to kind of thing to where I'm the guy that just, or guy or girl that just does this versus I have multiple options. I want to figure out what is going to fit your issues the best and your goals the best. And I think that's how we get past this debate, this stupid debating back and forth all the time. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And like getting more towards the second paper, um, this they did a an analysis of data that you know they had used prior that wasn't in the statistical model they had used prior didn't give you very practical information. Um, so they tried to use a different regression model that then you could build kind of decision trees off of and guide clinical decision making a little bit more effectively. But just give us kind of your brief impressions about the second paper looking at the shoulder, persistent shoulder pain, um, and then kind of classifying that and seeing the effect of self-efficacy on disability and persistent pain. Yeah, so this one honestly had a, a, another, for me, a unique statistical kind of way. They did a CART analysis, which I really cannot honestly speak on very yeah. much. You try to appraise these articles as best as you can. Um, but it's just, it's cool to see at the end of the day when you think about like what leads to persistent pain development in the shoulder. You would think, you're if you asked 100 people, you did like a family feud kind of thing, you'd get... Strength probably is the number number one thing. Everybody's always hyper aware of tearing and things like that. So some type of pathology. 
um, range of motion. You would get these kind of physical impairments. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they teased this out to uh, pain self-efficacy and patient expectations is just really cool because there's a lot of strong people with shoulder pain. There's a lot of strong people with rotator cuff tears or whatever other pathologies going to labral tears and things like that. It's a lot of people with excessive range of motion that, and, or just normal or whatever you consider to be normal, depending on the patient. So it's, it's cool that it came out to be these two factors, which give you another whole, another realm to work on. Cause we've all been at that point with shoulder patients to where we go in, they have pain with abduction, shoulder external rotation, and you give them, you start building them up, give them the bands and you start doing that. And you give them dumbbells, you have them progress as they go, but they still keep hurting. So it's nice to have another realm. And that's like kind of why I picked these papers too. There's other, there's other directions we can take this to, and also combine them as well to where like, okay, what is this patient? Does this patient think bands are going to help them? Do they think that strength is going to help them? What do they really believe is going to help them? Do they believe in physical therapy as a profession? And do they think that at the end of the day, this is something that they can self-manage? That's very powerful. And that's just a whole nother, a whole nother realm we can take this into to make it more of a complete intervention. Yeah. And so from like a, an incredibly practical standpoint, uh, I love that this article, they kind of recommended uh, just a, a for in terms of addressing patient outcomes or identifying what they are in the initial evaluation. You can either ask this, probably even better included in your intake paperwork for yes. these patients. Literally just one question, seven point Likert scale, just ask to what extent do you perceive the likelihood of success with physical therapy? You know, zero to seven or zero to six or whatever. And, um, and then that'll get at their expectations for success. Like how, how likely am I going to walk out of here without pain or, or whatever my definition of success is? That's a one question, super simple to ask Easy. and is going to tell you more about their likelihood of walking out with the outcomes that you want than any single thing you will ask or do with them during the entire evaluation. Yep. Most of us are not even doing that. No. You know, almost no one is taking. Yet, if I came out with a paper that said shoulder external rotation strength in scaption at 70 degrees has the same predictive value as that one question people would be freaking out. It would be, I would be getting Nobel prizes in our yeah, profession yeah. <laughs> for finding a physical thing that's so closely related to, you know, disability and persistent pain. Yet we have that thing. Yeah. We just have a hard time as a profession accepting that it's a question on a piece of paper and it's not our hands or our it's skills. It is not cool, but the tool is there for you to either choose to accept it as the research guides you in that direction or to deny it and to live in a, in a position where, you know, you're, you're missing out on some incredibly valuable information. And then from a self-efficacy standpoint, let me check what the, I don't know, do you know off the so top of your head the, what their recommendations were for the questionnaires? So basically, both of them use the pain self-efficacy questionnaire. Okay. Um, there's a, the I believe the full scale one is 10 questions. There's also a short one for that also is valid and reliable. It's two questions. So as Max said, like 
on your intake paperwork, it's almost like the two-point depression scale, which again is another thing we could go on to. It's highly predictive of these persistent uh, symptoms. It takes two questions, and they're really not that tough to answer. Yes or no? There's a point scale thing. I think I believe it's zero to four. Don't quote me on that. I got to check that. But um, it's something really easy you can administer. So out of all these papers and things like that, and out of this whole podcast, the big changes you can make clinically is check get the two-point questionnaire on your income on your intake or give it to them manually after or and then also ask them how likely zero to seven you think that you're going to get better from pt that is two very simple things that help guide your guide your treatment because you then are not working from behind you have that baseline information all right this person doesn't think i'm going to help them they think they have a tear that's going to need rotator cuff surgery so how do I, what is my next move then? Is it to automatically get to strengthening the rotor, rotator cuff at different, different? No, it's maybe start getting the education about, hey, we don't, now we know that rotator cuff tears aren't as correlated with, and they respond to conservative treatment. We have several great studies now at this point, even done by orthopedic surgeons, which I always say, this wasn't like a PT bias study. This was done by orthos. So they found that conservative care is just as effective for full thickness, partial thickness. There's even one for acute full thickness. So we have the data for this. So then you, you, if you don't identify these patients, you're missing these valuable opportunities for education. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have a hard time and I totally understand. I have a hard time too, bringing up, like discussing it in your evaluation. Like, how am I going to get around to talking about whether or not this person believes physical therapy is going to work for them. But you'd be surprised what people will answer on a questionnaire when it's just written down. They're not yes. having to say it out loud. Yeah. But then that gives you you know, a talking point where you can take that intake paperwork and say, like, hey, I saw that you, you, know, you rated that you thought your likelihood of success with PT was pretty low. Like, can you tell me a little bit about why you feel that way? Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, my doctor said it's probably not going to work and I'm probably going to need this at the end anyways. Okay, now there's a very specific thing that's leading to your beliefs about the likelihood of success. And I can address that thing. I can show you some stuff. And hopefully I can change that underlying kind of seed of beliefs yeah. that's growing weeds. And that's you know going to eventually prevent you from getting where you need to go. Or at least contribute to you not getting there as quickly or as effectively as you otherwise could. And it gives you an opportunity to talk based on that. But at the very least, it gives you some information that helps guide your decision making and guide your education as you go through. Um, Cool. Well, hopefully this was helpful for you guys out there listening. Again, if you need to get in touch with either myself or Brandon for these papers, feel free to do so. They should be in the show notes. Um, We read the title, so go back to the beginning and we uh, gave you the author and everything in the intro. But Brandon, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? So I'll have you put it in the show notes too. But just my first initial B and then last name, fredhoff at gmail.com. I love engaging in these conversations. I think these are the things that are ultimately going to push our profession forward because we are in the best spot of any other healthcare professional to be able to do this with people. Um, and I would be happy to continue talking and if other people have other uh, uh, articles that they would have and other examples or even ideas for self-efficacy type improvement behaviors, that'd, that'd be great to continue discussing it. 
Yeah, for sure. I agree 100%. And yeah, please get in touch with us if you have any of that. Otherwise, uh, thanks for listening. We will talk to you guys in the next one. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Training Room Talk podcast. We hope today's discussion was helpful in illuminating some of the complexities behind pain and rehab. If you don't know where to go from here, please reach out to us with questions. We have mentorship options for clinicians and students and programming options for you to elevate your own fitness. We look forward to speaking with you and again, hope you enjoyed today's discussion.